Hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of So Important, the Interview Podcast. It's great to be with you today, and I'm very excited about our guest, Bruce Pei. Bruce is a Renaissance man of sorts, a lover of music, and for many years an academic, two pursuits that came together in 2002 with the publication of Brown-Eyed Handsome Man, his seminal biography of the great music legend Chuck Berry. He also has a blog that is must-reading, and there's a link to it in the show notes. Now, longtime listeners know that I have an ongoing fascination with the birth of rock and roll and how it evolved in its early years. Chuck Berry was, of course, a big part of that. He was essential to creating the genre in the first place, and his accessible tunes played a big part in helping to bring the music to the masses. What makes Chuck so fascinating, though, is that the man carries a lot of baggage. His careful and often extreme management of his expenses, his formative episodes with racial bias, his inability to stay on the right side of the law, all of these things and many others make Chuck a somewhat isolated and enigmatic figure, one with a chip on his shoulder that lasted long into his career. So it's fair to say that in his book, Bruce has made a truly meaningful contribution to our understanding of this complex figure. And that's what we're going to talk about today. So, Bruce. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Monty. I'm going to dive right in. How did you come to develop what seems to be a long-term, intense fascination with Chuck Berry, and how did that lead you to write this book? I was born in 1960 and uh, uh, was born and raised in, in England. I grew up immersed in the music of the Beatles and the Stones and Kinks and the Who. And in my late teens and early 20s, I started to become a musician myself, and I played for many, many years. And I remember coming to this country in 1981 and playing guitar and singing. And I remember a lot of people used to come up to me and say, you know, you're from England, you've got to play the Beatles and, and, and that kind of stuff. And I grudgingly, begrudgingly started to play Beatles songs in my repertoire. And um, at a certain point, I think, you started to play stuff and you go, hmm, this is interesting. Where did this all come from? It, it, I started to, you know, look at, you know, what the Beatles' influences were. And Chuck Berry was, was the one that immediately sprang up. So I said, hmm, okay, so this guy sounds interesting. Let me do a little, I mean, you know, of course, everybody knows Johnny Be Good and, and, uh, and, and songs like Roll Over Beethoven. But I, just, I, did, I started to do a much deeper dive into his music. And then everything just kind of uh, went from there. So I started to, you know, develop a real interest in, you know, you know the early days of rock and roll, Chuck, uh, Elvis, uh, Jerry Lee Lewis, Buddy Holly, and so on. And that kind of stayed in the back of my mind as I was, uh, uh, as I was teaching and, and uh, doing my academic stuff, uh, which I did, you know, for most of the 80s and, and 90s. And I, I, I'd had this idea to do a, a long-term research project and really couldn't land on a specific subject that I wanted to, to, to write about academically. I, I, I really wanted to find something that had some real depth to it, but I, I, I just, none of the academic topics really kind of got me. One day the idea came to me. I was sitting in my office, it was a Friday afternoon, and I thought, you know, let's do a little research. Let's see what's written about Chuck Berry and I couldn't believe what what I was finding. And the answer was nothing had been written about Chuck Berry. There was a couple of books and there was no but there was no substance to them. There was no real meaningful discussion of who this man was, how he came to write uh, some of the most incredibly important music of the 20th century. And so that afternoon, I just said, you know what, there, there it is. There's the project. It, it's going to combine my love for music and it's going to combine my academic research. And that began a about a 
six or seven year project, which culminated in the in the publication of Brown Eyed Handsome Men in 2002, like you said. How did you choose the title? Uh, that was actually uh, a push from my editor, uh, Richard Carlin, and it just seemed, it just seemed to make sense. Chuck was a was a very good looking man, and I think that <laughs> led to a lot of his a uh, lot of his problems uh, as his career developed. Uh, and it just it just seemed to um, it seemed to capture. I mean, the the song itself, "Brown Eyed Handsome Man," really kind of talks about the issues of uh, um, of, of a black man growing up in the nineteen fifties. Uh, you know, arrested on charges of unemployment. You know, there's a there's a line right there at the beginning of the song uh, that that basically addresses issues uh, for black males that we're still dealing with today. So, so it seemed like a good. Thing. Oh, arrested on charges of unemployment. He was sitting in the witness stand. The judge's wife called up the district attorney. She said, "Free that brown-eyed man. If you want your job, you better free that brown-eyed man." Flying across the desert in a TWA, I saw a woman walk across the sand. She'd been walking 30 miles en route to Bombay to meet a brown-eyed handsome man. Her destination was a brown-eyed handsome man. Way back in history, 3,000 years, in fact, ever since the world began, there's been a whole lot of good women shedding tears over a brown-eyed handsome man. Well, it is a good fit, and one of the things that you just mentioned is that there hadn't been a lot of books about Chuck Berry. Of course, there was his uh, autobiography, and that's uh, from 1986. And it seems like, or part of the places where you felt you could add some value added was to fill some of the gaps left in that uh, autobiography. Would that be an accurate right. thing to say? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, like all, I mean, Chuck is certainly not unique. Like, Anybody that's ever written an autobiography is going to get put a pretty positive spin on some on a lot of things. But one of the things I loved about the the autobiography, Chuck was very humble about what he did. He maintained all the way throughout his career that he did nothing unique. He did nothing nothing special. And you know, my my understanding of creativity is that you know nobody invents anything from nothing. What Chuck did is take two very different things and put them together and create a, a new thing. You know, so he says, you know, he took um, uh, took country music and put that together with, you know, his, his love for guitar and just put this stuff together. So that, that, that was one of the things about the autobiography that really struck me. But yeah, there's, there's some gaps there and there's some um, little creative um, bending of the truth, shall we say. Well, one of the things that you did in your book was that you spent a lot of time uh, discussing his trials. And that was yeah. clearly a conscious decision on your part that you wanted to really tell the whole story. And that yeah. certainly would be an area in the book, in his book, where he did yeah. not dwell in detail, certainly not to the extent that you did. One of the big surprises as I started to uncover, um, uh, as, as I started to do the research, was there was a lot, there was a wealth of material about those trials. Uh, uh, the transcripts for both the um, trials involving Janice Escalante are still available. You can still <laughs> obtain them from the Missouri archives. Um, Let's tell people a little bit about who Janice was. In December 1959, Chuck does a little uh, swing, a, a tour through uh, the southwestern states and stops in El Paso, where he meets this young woman, Janice Escalante. At the time, Chuck maintained that she uh, looked and acted 18. She was probably 14 or 15, we're not quite sure. 
Chuck decides he wants to bring her back to St. Louis with him, which is a kind of crazy notion. And so he brings her back to work in his club, his little nightclub that he had in St. Louis Club Bandstand. Janice works for a couple of weeks for him and then decides she's had enough and she wants to go back to El Paso. And Chuck sends her back or Chuck tries to send her back, uh, but she she tells the local police what has happened, and Chuck gets arrested for uh, a violation of the Mann Act, which uh, uh, was uh, uh, an act from the 1920s uh, that prohibited the transport of a minor across across state lines for, quote-unquote, the intent of immoral purposes. So you didn't actually have to do anything immoral. You just had to think it, I suppose. I don't, <laughs> don't quite know what, you just, what you'd say about that. And at the time, the, uh, the local uh, uh, federal prosecutor also dug up another charge that, uh, that, that Chuck had, um, had done the same thing with another woman. So Chuck actually ended up getting tried three times. The first time for the Janice Escalante incident, he was found guilty. That was thrown out by the judge, uh, sorry, a big pardon, by the appeals court uh, because they found that the judge had uh, uttered racist comments throughout the trial. Uh, the second trial for, jo- for the Joan Mathis incident was actually thrown out after, I think, a day or so. We don't have the records for that. At the time, the state of Missouri used to uh, destroy any records of not, not guilty verdicts. Uh, in uh, criminal trials, so we don't we only have like little pieces of uh, information on that. But but the the, the gist of it is that uh, the judge basically threw the charge out, and then Chuck has to go back in 1961 for a second trial, and is again found guilty, and then uh, sent to prison. Uh, I think it was supposed to be for five years, but he ended up getting released after 20 months. So that's the in a nutshell what happened. Yeah, and it's I think the way you detail it is is really riveting. And I thought you know that that really tells the whole story in a way that reveals not only Chuck's travails and what he was going through, but also told us a lot about how society was looking at him at the time. Mm-hmm. That's absolutely right. Yeah. And I'm not saying that the, the, the prosecution was racist. I talked to um, the, the, the federal prosecutor who maintained to, this, uh, to, to his death that uh, he had gone after Chuck basically for the age of the girl. But it really, you know, it was absolutely tied up with, uh, with um, the times. I mean, it, the launch counter sit-ins and so on. And there was a tremendous amount of segregation in St. Louis at the time. So you have the trials. You have at least two stints in jail. And you have uh, a number of run-ins with the law, even at a very early age. Yeah. And then, as you alluded to a little bit, in his time in St. Louis, uh, he, he grew up in a mostly in a black, uh, you call it a middle-class neighborhood. But nonetheless, there was a lot of systemic bias that he had to deal with even early on. I think, yeah, I think just, just pivotal moments that I think planted that seed of distrust for society that I think Chuck had throughout his entire life. You know, he had grown up in this, as you said, this black middle-class neighborhood called The Ville in St. Louis. And I think that he was very sheltered by that. And then when he started to have experiences with the, the bigger white community, you know, I think he, he just encountered racism all the way through his life. And that made him bitter and very distrustful. I, I don't want to necessarily say bitter, but very distrustful. And you see these two different parts of Chuck. You know, still today, if you speak to anybody like Jim Marsala, his, his longtime bass player, or uh, uh, Billy Peak, who played with him in the 1970s, you know, they, they love him. They, they, they clearly is a tremendous amount of affection for Chuck. 
anybody that really knows or really knew Chuck really loved him. But everybody else, he, he kept at arm's distance, including me. <laughs> so. Maybelline, why can't you be true? Oh, Maybelline, why can't you be true? You just started doing the things you used to do. As I was motivating over the hill, I saw Maybelline in a coupe de ville. in those formative early years he produced so much great music one song after another i mean most people when they hear chuck berry they think johnny be good right maybe as you pointed out maybe one or two others but his whole body of work is always pretty good you know and there's so many great songs oh yeah but it seems like he never felt that he was really part of part of the scene or, or I don't know how would you describe it how would you describe that in the context of all the things about him as a person that you were just talking about well I think Chuck saw himself as a workman you know just the same as somebody can call himself as a lawyer or a, you know or whatever he was a musician but to him that was work it was not about creativity it was about going on the road and earning a buck you know we live in an age where we have like a cult a cult of celebrity People are famous for being famous, but that wasn't, you know, Chuck, Chuck did not want, to, I don't think he really wanted to be famous. I think he kind of, kind of saw that as just being kind of uh, a distraction. Uh, and I think what he really wanted to be is just somebody uh, that called his own shots, um, but just happened to be a musician. And uh, that was his income. That's how he got his income and, and, and how he made a living. He ever really appreciated his own influence? I, no, I don't think he did. I, I don't think he really paid much attention to that. Um, I, I seem to recall a, 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 somebody asking him one time about what he thought about, a, um, uh, I think the Rolling Stones doing one of his songs. And he, he just was about, hey, you know what? Great. I get more royalties. <laughs> you know? Well, he's not the only one who thought like that. There's uh, some stories from Muddy Waters and others yeah. saying pretty much the same thing. They were all for the Rolling Stones. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Well, that's actually how I came to Chuck, because I'm a huge Rolling Stones fan and a huge Keith Richards fan in that process. So you came to it a little bit more through the Beatles. For me, it was a little bit more. It was completely, I'm not a, I'll admit, I'm not a Beatles fan. So for me, it was completely through the Stones and Keith. And, uh, you know, as you go back and you listen to that music and you listen to the early Stones albums, you hear all these great artists. And Chuck is the predominant one from Carol and uh, some, so many of the other ones that he covered from Chuck. And... He had kind of a difficult relationship with Keith, didn't he? Oh, absolutely, yeah. And uh, all you've got to do is just uh, watch the, the documentary, Hell, Hell, Rock and Roll, to see that dynamic in, in place. Keith was just trying so hard to rein Chuck in and make him focus on what on the job at hand. And, you know, Chuck wasn't like that, Chuck. Chuck was just like, hey, whatever's whatever happens, happens. You know, and, and Keith is very conscious of the fact that they're making a movie and they're doing these 
historic concerts, you know, with Eric Clapton and uh, uh, Linda Ronstadt and, and, and all of these people um, uh, on board. And um, so, yeah, I, I mean, you know, they, they, they almost came to blows a number of times, you know, throughout the years. And uh, that, I think, was like the culmination and, you know, the, the endearing scene in that movie for me is when Keith is like slumped back in his chair after the concert's done and his this this really smart looking blue teddy boy coat that that he had on it was just like draped in sweat and just like rumpled up and and he's exhausted and he's just puffing on a cigarette and going well I'm done you know stick a fork in me and uh yeah it's it, it's a great movie and, it, and it, it, I, I think you really kind of get a sense of how um distrustful Chuck Chuck was and how much of a private man he was from that movie yeah well the movie is hell hell rock and roll it was to celebrate his 50th birthday right 60th, 60th birthday yeah yep. and if somebody's really lazy and doesn't even want to watch the movie. There's a couple clips on YouTube that, yeah. you know, to me, that's the apocryphal moment is, is watching Keith's reaction when they're doing Carol and, you know, and, and you can see he, he, he's ready to explode, yeah. but he somehow holds it in, doesn't he? I, I think, I think that's the moment where um, Chuck, Chuck tries to get a rise out of, uh, out of Keith on stage by telling him he's going to change the key after they'd rehearsed, rehearsed a song in one particular key. He goes over to Keith and, and, and looks at him and says, I'm going to change it. And, and Keith is about ready to kill him <laughs> right there on stage. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Now, now you've met him a couple of times, right? Or at John, least you inter- Yeah. And well, yeah. You want to talk about that a little bit? And then, I, then I'll tell you my story of the one time when I met him. So, so the fir- the first time I I saw Chuck was in concert at uh, SUNY Geneseo up here in Western New York, and um, he he played this a really lackluster show as a lot of his later shows were with a local band that really kind of was just along for the ride, I guess. And after the show, um, I, I I knew that he would ha- he would drove into the show with a rented Cadillac. That was his usual MO for back in the day. And uh, there was only one Cadillac in the parking lot. So I figured that had to be Chuck. So I just waited there with a copy of his autobiography. And he comes out with a, um, uh, with a young lady companion, gets in the driver's seat, and, I, and he finally winds the window down, sees me there, winds the window down. And I say, Chuck, you know, happy birthday. His birthday was coming up. Would you mind signing a copy of, the autogra- uh, of your autobiography for me? And he actually picked up the book from me and the pen, turns the book upside down for God knows why, and signs the book upside down, hands it to me, and drives off. So that's the first time I met him. And then the second time was backstage at uh, Blueberry Hill, which is a club in St. Louis uh, owned by Joe Edwards that Chuck used to play a regular monthly gig on a Wednesday night there. And I, I'd gotten to know Joe as I was writing the book. And Joe said, why don't you come backstage afterwards and meet Chuck? So I go backstage and uh, just kind of, I, I had my friend Bill Greensmith there with a camera and I just wanted a fit picture with me and Chuck and, and, and Chuck, uh, uh, looks at me and looks at the camera and says, is that going to flash? And I said, yeah. And he says, I'm not going to look at the camera. It hurts my eyes. And so I had this great photograph of me with Chuck looking in a completely opposite direction. So, <laughs> so those are my two times meeting Chuck Berry. What's your story? Oh, my story is I was living uh, in Virginia at the time. I live in Maryland now. And Chuck happened to be in town. But in those days, $50 was a lot of money. And I couldn't, he, I don't know what he was playing, but it was a lot of money. It was the mid 80s. But I did drive through Washington, D.C. to pick up some food on my way 
back to where I live. And I stopped at a fairly seedy Chinese restaurant in uh, Chinatown to pick up something for takeout. And I got my order and I paid and I got my order. I turned around and two people behind me in line was Chuck Berry. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> uh, and, and I said, hi, Chuck. And he gave a nod. And that was my interaction with Chuck Berry. That's my great celebrity story. <laughs> You know, I had no reason to bother him or anything like that. He just wanted some food. Up in the morning and out to school. The teacher is teaching the golden rule. American history and practical man. You study him hard and hoping to pass. Working your fingers right down to the bone. And the guy behind you won't leave you alone. Ring, ring goes the bell. The cook in the lunchroom ready to sell You're lucky if you can find a seat You're fortunate if you have time to eat Back in the classroom, open your books Keep it, the teacher don't know I mean she looks You know, at the end, it's about the music And it's about all he's given us in terms of the music And what do you think is his lasting legacy? Well, you know, as a as a music historian, you know, you you can see Chuck's influence go from 1955 when he starts recording, when he records Maybelline, right through practically every major artist of the of the 60s and 70s, uh, and and even beyond. Um, there's just so so many people took that blueprint of of his and and either um, covered it. Or in the cases of people like Bruce Springsteen, they took, you know, the whole idea of storytelling in a, in a, in a pop song and, and took it to a, 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 another level. Chuck's endearing legacy, I think, is number one, just great, great songwriting. You know, I mean, you mentioned Johnny B. Good, and of course, everybody goes to gravitate towards that. But what about Roll Over Beethoven, which is, you know, it's so much fun. And uh, I think of some of the, the latest songs like um, uh, uh, You Never Can Tell or um, Nadine, all of which, you know, in, in about a three and a half, three, three and a half minute span of time can tell this great story. That's, that's the first thing I think that Chuck, Chuck's legacy really uh, is so, so strong. The second thing is the guitar playing. Again, Chuck didn't invent some of the guitar playing that he did, but what he did, what he did do is 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 create that driving, insistent uh, rhythm, uh, which which was just basically, in my, uh, I think his uh, his tr- his attempt to try and replicate what Johnny Johnson, his piano player, was doing with with his left hand, and uh, and and Chuck just kind of got uh, gets that da 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 you know that that thing is just very unusual on guitar. And then, of course, the leads that he would play, you know, and you just think of the the, the opening introduction to a song like Johnny Be Good uh, with those two, the, those double stop leads. The, it's just really exciting. And, you know, Keith Richards, as you say, and most guitarists that followed in the 1960s, and I would say even through the 70s, just ba- basically tried to imitate that. And then the third thing that, that Chuck brought was an incredible showmanship. You know, you see the the footage of him performing with the duck walk, doing the splits, and 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 the facial expressions too. I mean, you know, even towards the end when when his shows weren't that great, Chuck would always, you know, be engaged and would 
would act out the stories effectively with a little nod and a wink on songs like My Ding Ling or something like that, where, you know, which is full of double entendre. And, uh, you know, so, so he's just a consummate entertainer as well. So I, I think that's, those are the three legacies. And it's very, you know, the sad part about Chuck is that he didn't do any recordings after about 1977 or so. So his legacy kind of dwindled off. I would agree with all of that. I guess if I were to add anything to it, it would be one, it's kind of cool to check out some of his blues albums. He did some really nice blues in there. And and the other thing that I would mention, and I think you'll agree, is he he had a way of taking the music that he was making and making it so accessible to the teens of the 1950s. I think that was really instrumental in in creating what became rock and roll to everybody and really broke down some barriers. No no question about it. You know, I, I always th- kind of think that before the 50s, there were no teenagers. You were either a kid or you were an adult. You know, the 1950s, you start to see this this group of, uh, of people with their own disposable income. And I'm sure that Chuck was very calculated about that and said, you know, I'm going to write songs for this particular group of people and, 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 and try and talk about their interests, you know, um, uh, wanting to get in a car on a Saturday night and go out with a date and, um, you know, go to the, go to the local diner and uh, put some songs on the jukebox, those kinds of things that, that kids would be doing. Or, and of course, the classic school days where, you know, he just basically writes a song about a day in the life of a kid going to school so so well, he's he, in his mid-30s well yeah, exactly the, the great <laughs> the great contradiction there you know how does a a guy that old you know engage with the people half his age and uh, but he did it well, he was a smart guy he's always going to be a bit of an enigma yeah but it's great to have a conversation to talk about what he's done and uh it, it's a nice book i've, I've read it tw- as i mentioned i've read it twice now and thank you for writing it <laughs> Thank you for being with me today. Thank you. Thank you. In the wee wee hours That's when I think of you In the wee wee hours That's when I think of you You say, but yet I wonder If your love was ever true In a wee little room I sit alone and think of you In a wee little room I sit alone and think of you I wonder if you still remember All the things we used to do 